Welcome to Changing Your Dreams, Parenting a Child with Special Needs, a podcast where we shine a light on the unique grief of special needs parents that few people recognize and no one really talks about. I'm your host, Laura Kitts. How do we live a beautiful life with chronic stress and grief? How do we nurture ourselves while we nurture our children? How do we make ourselves a priority when they need so much? My guests and I will discuss this chronic, ever-renewing grief, transforming your dreams, and how to take care of yourself along the way when parenting a differently abled child. This episode is sponsored by Flight Club. Join a circle of friends who understand you and your life as a special needs parent. Combine that with monthly guest experts, live self-care accountability sessions with me, and easy, actionable assignments to help you emerge from the hard work, transformed, just as the butterfly from her chrysalis, and you've got Flight Club. One of the many layers of grief experienced by some parents of kids with special needs is tied to the trauma experienced either at birth or at the time of diagnosis, if it comes later. Today's guest shares her traumatic story of receiving her daughter's rare diagnosis of KIF-1A when she was 18 months old. Shannon Dennis is the mom to six-year-old Sadie and three-year-old Weston. Shannon talks with us about the layers of Sadie's rare diagnosis, coupled with the newly received autism diagnosis. She also shares what it means to navigate three-year-old Weston's delays and developmental needs. And she has a message for medical professionals on how to and not to talk with families when delivering hard news. Thank you for listening as we discuss why the approach and words of medical professionals matters to the mental health of parents receiving a diagnosis for their child. Let's get to it. Hi, Shannon. Hello. I'm happy to see you today. Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation about your kids and about being a mom. Yeah, anytime. Feels like a full-time job, so it's always on my mind. (laughs) It is a full-time job, 100%. Um, It's a full-time job for every mom. Yes. Right? Moms moms don't get a break. There's all kinds of memes about that. Yeah. You don't get to go to the bathroom by yourself. You don't get a day off if you're sick, et cetera, et cetera. But you have um, probably two full-time jobs. Yeah. I would say uh, just for being a mom, right? Yes. So tell us about your role as a mom. Um, Yeah. Uh, I, gosh. Okay. My role as a mother, I am a mother to two children. My daughter, Sadie is six years old and she has a rare degenerative neurological disease called KIF1A, um, associated neurological disorder, sometimes called KIF1A, sometimes called CAND. Um, and so she was my first experience in motherhood. Um, and then I have my son Weston. Um, he is almost four. And, um, yeah, they're my kids. I am divorced, uh, going on 18 months of, um, co-parenting. Um, so navigating that, um, and that's my parenting experience right now is keeping the tiny humans happy and healthy as much as I can. Well, that's big. And so you got divorced in COVID then, like, right. Yeah. I I, yeah, I feel like I fit fit the bill of a lot of, um, families, uh, and, and Adele's most recent album. Um, (laughs) yeah, definitely. I think, yeah, May, May, we separated and then January it was finalized. So we've been doing week on week off parenting and even, I think we called it nesting where we shared the house for a while um, until we could find handicap accessible homes of our own to move into. Um, Yeah, it's been a weird couple of years. So neither of you stayed in your original home. You both moved. We did. Um, It was definitely unaffordable on a single budget. So Uh, had to get smaller things. 
Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So just that logistic alone of finding two handicap accessible houses within each of your budget as a single parent. Yeah. I mean that alone. Yeah. That was in COVID. No less. Yeah. During COVID and the housing market was crazy. I, you know, I just bought something small. It isn't the most accessible, um, but I've been chipping away at uh, small renovations. We got a ramp put out front recently. Um, She's like around 45 pounds. So like always lifting her isn't the best move anymore, even though I can do it. I I'm finding um, using the ramp um, and using her wheelchair more when I can. And when she's willing um, is super helpful for me physically. Cause that was also a huge change to get used to was um, 100% of the lifting for seven days in a row like that. I, my body had to acclimate to that as well. Um, right. Yeah. So and a wheelchair van has been a recent purchase as well. And not lobbing her into the car seat has been great on my back um, as well. So just yes, that only procuring modification. <laughs> yeah, that one is big though, right? Being able to yeah. just wheel her chair and strap down the wheelchair into the van. Yes. That's how, how those work. So you don't have to transfer her. Yes, it's so much nicer so much nicer and the like the entry height for them to just like walk into that and help her get position rather than craning your back around or lifting her up a certain height um I think a lot I would have done it two years ago if I would have known how much of a help it would be and how um greatly diminished of a hurdle it feels to get out of the house anymore I mean it's still anybody with two kids knows that it's still like a zoo with and especially in the winter hats jackets and all their gear but uh the wheelchair van made a huge difference well and those are are cheap you know if not free right they just give away those wheelchair van like <laughs> yeah oh my god <laughs> sometimes i i i am generally a positive person but sometimes i hate america and for-profit medicine it is maddening i was looking very, very sincerely at importing a vehicle from Canada because uh, another family with the uh, afflicted with the rare disease my daughter had, unfortunately their daughter passed away um, and they were selling it at such a reasonable price point because I, it was my understanding in Canada that they'll pay for the conversion of the vehicle. So they were just looking to sell it at a regular van price, but the, the nightmares of navigating that in the middle of a divorce, uh, during COVID because there was restrictions on imports didn't pan out, but I got really fortunate and there was a nice gentleman selling a used one, um, locally, but yes, uh, 30 to $50,000 more than like a typical van. If you want to converge on top of a, yeah, on typical van. Yes. And there's, there's a handful of grant opportunities in Michigan. Um, but I fall between the cracks, uh, as a lot of families do, uh, for the qualifications, uh, for a lot of things. Cause I, I am very fortunate. I, I do have a great job. I work as a pediatric nurse practitioner, um, and, uh, are arguing that you need assistance, even though your, uh, income looks good on paper is, uh, is a maddening process. Yeah. And that's the story of so many of us. Yeah. So many of us, just because our, our system is broken. It's so broken. And I kept, because I've been graced by, you know, community members and, um, Sadie's been on the receiving end of, you know, several fundraisers. And sometimes I'll have that moment where I'm like, this shouldn't be for us. Um, but somebody told me, you know, we have extraordinary kids that have extraordinary expenses. And so sometimes you have to go to extraordinary measures to, to provide them what they need. And that helped me reframe it. Uh, there was no class in high school on how to accept charity. So, uh, that was helpful for me. That's beautiful. I love that. Yeah. I'm glad that you were able to receive that message and, um, to accept that message. Yeah. At the time that you did, because yeah, I had a similar experience when my daughter, was born and you know little and everyone wanting to help and we had uh the fortunate now you know in retrospect we were like I could see how fortunate it was that I had been on three months of bed rest with her 
because we had no choice, but to, you know, my husband had to accept help at the time because we had zero children, (laughs) but uh, that, you know, to need help with, but you're in this place of extreme stress and extreme anxiety, not knowing whether the child you're growing is going to live or die in utero even, you know? Um, And so when you are carrying more, it is okay to do less. Like you you need to do less because that mental load is so extraordinary and has physical ramifications on your body. Um, and so it's not just the physical stress of lifting her and, and carrying her and transferring her. You also have the mental, um, and emotional energy that can take a toll on your physical body, which so many of us don't realize, or we forget, or we just have to push through and do it anyway. But it truly is all connected. Energy is all connected. And so those heavy loads, um, they affect your physical body. So we had to, long back to the story was, yeah, we had to get used to accepting how people, you know, were concerned and friends loved us yeah. and wanted to, you know, come clean the floors or whatever. And so yeah. got used to saying, yes, okay. And, and um, it was really, really, really hard for my husband, especially um, because, you know, society and he's supposed to yeah. provide and take care of us and all that sort of thing. So yeah, it gets easy. Yeah. To, it's so funny how we can, yeah. I don't know, frame good deeds from others and feel wrong or guilty about it. But, right. but think about, I mean, you're a pediatric nurse. You clearly are also a giver and you clearly love uh, taking care of others and wanting to do and help. Right. Yeah. And so if you have a friend or someone that you find out about that, you're like, oh my gosh, wow. What are they going through? You know, say one of your friends gets cancer, you want to go help them. And if they turn away your help every single time that, you know, that doesn't feel, you want to help you like, no, I want to help you. Like, let me do this. (laughs) So being on the receiving end of knowing you're helping them also by letting them give is also a valuable exchange. Yeah. And I found personally like a trend like I'll Sadie's had um a diagnosis since she was like maybe 18 months old or so and she's six now so like different things have come up where I've done like community fundraisers for her rare disease research foundation um not hers but related to her diagnosis kifwane.org or where um I don't know, just recently, um, I like posted the nightmare of trying to navigate procuring DME equipment and the multiple visits involved and the travel expenses. And, you know, somebody reached out to me and was like, Hey, we're doing a 5k. We haven't chosen a recipient. We'd love for it to go towards Sadie and her medical expenses. Those moments where somebody helps or the community really steps up have always come at like great times not to make it about me, but where I'm like, kind of feeling a little, like a little pity party, like a little alone in this, or, you know, a little, this is too much for somebody to handle. Um, I have been consistently like cared by the community. Pause you there real quick. Can I just pause that? Because you said not to make this about me, but I might be having a small pity party in these moments, (laughs) et cetera. It is about you, Shannon. Well, it, in it, my mind, it is, I, about, it is about this is your life. life. This is your life now for the rest of your life. Your life is totally changed from what it was six years ago. Yes. Yeah. So it is yeah. about you and it is about your grief and your yeah. transformation and your learning. Yeah. It's been, uh, it's been weird to try and put more focus on myself. Uh, and that was, I think, uh, uh, honestly, the basis probably for my separation and yeah, it's, I, I don't know the statistics, but I, divorce rates aren't great and special needs parenting divorce rates are certainly worse. Um, because you do totally lose yourself. Yeah. I'm not sure the truth of it, but I've heard 80%. 
Yeah. I, Whereas the typical I, population. I it because you, you, you lose yourself as a parent and I think you lose yourself as a special needs parent um, to a more significant degree. Um, yeah, and it's- So can you tell us more about K-1, wait, let me look at it, K-I-F-1-A. You got <laughs> it. Write so, it down. Um, KIF1A. What what is it? What does it mean if a child so has KIF1A um, is the name of an actual gene that's mutated, um, and it's a motor protein. Um, and its job, if it's working well, is to transport cargo on neurons. So um, neurons in your brain, but neurons that are also nerve cells that extend from your brain down to your fingertips and toes. Um, and so there's a whole bunch of motor proteins that do this job. KIF-1A is like the semi-trucks on the highway. It is the heaviest carrying, um, you know, motor protein and it is malfunctioning. Um, and that buildup of cargo um, leads to cell death um, and like slowed messages. So like if we go to, you know, thinking about that at the root of everything. So like her legs don't work as well as her arms because the neurons are longer. Um, her brain has seizures. She has progressive cerebellar atrophy. Um, so when she had an MRI at nine months, when we were trying to work her up and find out what was wrong, it was perfect. And they were like, well, this doesn't fit cerebral palsy. Um, and then at, I don't know, maybe 18 months ago, she had another MRI just to see about disease progression. She's lost about 30% of her cerebellum. Um, the strange thing with rare disease is we can't say, will it keep going at that rate? Uh, um, because uh, we're in the orphans, like the baby, baby, baby stages of building a natural history study um, for this rare disease so that people diagnosed 10 years from now can look it up and say, oh, this is what's associated with it. These are the medications that work well to help with the symptoms. Um, and so since diagnosis, we've been really involved in that. Um, other ways she's affected, um, she's blind. Um, I think she has some light perception. She'll say like light on or bright or sunny. Um, she has seizures. She can't walk. Um, she's been having issues with aspirating recently. So we started thick and liquid diet, um, likely with related to low muscle tone. Um, and then most recently, um, diagnosed with autism, uh, which isn't surprising. She's always been Sadie quirky. Um, but that was an interesting, uh, giant diagnosis to add on to the list of her others. Um, but yeah, so that's how does, her, how does how does her autism present in autism? So blindisms and autism um, symptoms are, can be really similar. So um, so it, a lot of things I had been attributing to blindisms, uh, like stimming. Um, so she do a lot of stimming, rocking back and forth in her high chair, head banging, um, biting. Um, she also has. And I didn't know if this was like cognitive abilities or um, what, but she she gets really uh, fixated on certain objects, um, and we call it coveting. Um, I very much think of uh, the guy in the Lord of the Rings that's coveting the ring. Like she has trinkets that she holds, and she'll panic if they fall out of her hands, and she likes to press them together. Um, it changes maybe every couple months and we cycle through the same handful of things, coins, those Easter eggs, <laughs> those plastic Easter eggs, um, teacups from certain tea sets, um, monster trucks, oddly. Um, but yeah, she'll covet and ask for certain things. Um, but she's also smart and humorous. So yeah, she's, when we got the diagnosis to cope, I just, erased all expectations for her. Like that felt healthiest to me. I was like, well, she does something. It'll be great. And it'll surprise me. Like I'll, I'll take her off this pedestal of achieving all these things I thought my daughter would. Um, and so she does continue consistently surprise me with her skills. Um, but yeah, the autism, I'm still learning about what it looks like in her, um, and still trying to get the 
multidisciplinary diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So the KIF-1A is primarily, <clears throat> excuse me, primarily a motor uh, function. Yeah, a motor neuron, um, yeah, neurological disease, progressive. Um, and it's just, so a lot of the people affected, you can have an inherited version um, or you can just have a spontaneous mutation, which is what Sadie has. And so we do see people that join our um family support group and our natural history study of both varieties, but the inherited version typically presents much more mild um, and doesn't seem to be as degenerative. Um, The spontaneous mutations, um, a lot of the times where we see both alleles affected um, tend to have the more significant um, form of the disease. And so as far as the spectrum of KIF-1A, cities on the more severe end, um, there are some kids that don't have seizures that just have, you know, corrective eyeglasses for a little bit of, um, you know, eye problems and maybe like ankle orthotics for a little bit of ligamental laxity. Um, uh, but then we also have people that have been diagnosed uh, that have died within the first year of life due to terrible seizures and uh, poor respiratory status. So the, the variance of the disease is so vast, it's hard to um, find comfort in the diagnosis um, of knowing because it, it doesn't provide a ton of information for us right now. Mm-hmm. And then the autism is a layer of cognit- cognitive disability then. Yeah, yes. And so, I mean, I can relate somewhat in that my daughter has cerebral palsy and autism. Yeah. And so it's the motor and then the cognitive. Um, obviously, uh, CP is not a rare degenerative disease. So, I don't interestingly, yeah, there's been a few studies where they've um, sequenced um, people with cerebral palsy because it's a, oftentimes a catch all diagnosis of yes. like there's delays. We think it's neurological in origin. They presented around the time of birth. And so a lot of people um, are misdiagnosed with cerebral palsy before they're diagnosed with KIF-1A. And um, in some studies where they've offered um, genetic testing to those with uh, cerebral palsy, KIF-1A is like in the top 100 of the common mutations responsible for CP-like symptoms. Um, Yeah. I did, I did love, what I loved about the CP diagnosis was that it was uh, static. It was, you know, it's, it doesn't get worse. I, I, I um, really held on to that initially when we were in that limbo for 12 months when she had that diagnosis. Um, but you say that you held on to that. Did they say, why would there be a limbo? Why would there be a, oh. a on? like you knew so there a lot of people, it might not with be like, kids that are afflicted with rare disease, it takes a long time for them to be diagnosed. We were fortunate because I'm noisy and pushy and obnoxious in the healthcare system. And I went to everybody that was a specialist in whatever she was diagnosed with. So she was diagnosed with cortical vision impairment. We flew to Pittsburgh to see Dr. Roman to get a formal CVI assessment. And when somebody said, well, we should think she has cerebral palsy. It was a traumatic birth, um, but she did resuscitate quickly. No NICU stay. She was full term. Um, and I had something called chorioamnionitis, which is a placental infection that increases your risk of your term child having cerebral palsy. And so at the time they just said, well, there's these delays. She's also blind. So blind kids crawl late, you know, they walk late. Um, we think, you know, that she probably has cerebral palsy. And so we went with that for a while. And then I went and saw, uh, expert in cerebral palsy, uh, Dr. Um, Stephen, DeRoos at DeVos Children's Hospital. And he said, you know, cerebral palsy, you should see some sort of brain infarct injury, something on this MRI. And it's perfectly normal. I don't think this is CP. I think you should go see a genetic specialist. Um, So we met with a genetic specialist and he did um, some preliminary testing that's cheaper, right? We start low and build up. Um, and then he said, you know, I think we should do something called whole exome sequencing. And let's and just time- say cheaper than the other ones. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Not cheap. <laughs> no, um, I'm sh- yeah, thousands and thousands. And I think as every year goes on, the cost of genetic testing becomes lesser. But at the time it was quoted that it was a $20,000 negotiation with my insurance company to get it approved. And um, by the grace of the genetic counselor, they got it approved. And I really thought, um, you know, that nothing would come of it. She had CP, 
you know, I had learned all about CP. I had the CP ribbon. I had CP fundraisers at the university I was working at at the time. I, you know, was really hanging on to this idea that it's static. And if we rehab the shit out of her, she'll improve, um, you know, that she would walk. Um, and then because I live in the upper peninsula of Michigan and all of these specialists are downstate, which is like a nine hour drive. Um, the way I received the news about her genetic testing results was a phone call and they knew I was working on my doctorate in nursing. So I'm trying to give them some grace for this, but she said, you know, we found something on her genetic testing that's congruent with some of her symptoms. There's only two published articles on it. I'll send them to your email. And I, my gut instinct was just joy. We found other people like Sadie, this would be, I was so naive to think that this would be good news. This would be information. Uh, and I opened the articles and they were medical journal articles with, I don't know, between the two of them, maybe nine patients that had been identified with the variant and, um, sequential MRI pictures of brain shrinkage and just the really depersonalized as medical journals are, um, but grim, um, even mentioning death. Um, and I popped in KIF1A on Google. And by the grace of God, there was a dad in New York that made this webpage at the time, um, Luke Rawson. He's the founder of our organization. And um, we connected and he told me that there was about 30 cases in the world and uh, that he was working with a researcher at Columbia University to kind of gather our numbers, our first goal was 100 diagnosed cases um, so that we could approach pharmaceutical companies and say, hey, we have enough people for it to be financially worth your while to care about a cure for this. Um, and so that is who I ended up connecting with and uh, pouring my excess energies towards. Um, at the time, it was just a mom and pop organization of parents running it, um, you know, after their nine to fives, but we've been fortunate to receive some um, grants. And so we have uh, paid staff and I've taken a huge step back outside of uh, the occasional new parent joint that has questions on um, the disease and, you know, what is KIF-1A and what, is, what isn't and um, helping them identify that. But yeah, the initial and sadly, a lot of genetic reports are shared in really calloused ways like that. Um, leaving the parents to make heads or tails of what this means. Um, so and let me step back and unpack, unpack that um, story because it's such a common story, unfortunately, for many people's either, either their birth story for their child who has disabilities or their diagnosis story. Yeah. And so, and so I, if it's okay with you, I'd like to talk further about about that. Um, yeah. Um, you are a pediatric nurse. Yes. You just are. And so you, uh, you are even able to deliver it in a, in a way right now that <laughs> is very factual. <laughs> yeah. Very, you know, very linear. Um, and, and as a mom dealing with everything that you have to deal with, that's often our modality as well. Oh yeah, I mean, package it up and move you're, on. You're, you're like legit, time. There's you're no a legit pediatric and... nurse, but so many of us others wear the badge of honor. Yeah, <laughs> they're doctor moms. Yes. <laughs> um, but how did that feel? What was that? What was that grief? So I, I remember I was in the kitchen, like I could play it out in my head. I was home alone. She called me and she said, I'll send you the article. So I ran and got my university laptop um, and I opened up the emails and then I was gutted. I, you always skim journal articles or I always do. That was how I was trained in school. You, you read through the abstract, you glance at the conclusion. And I did that and I was sick and I was like, am I, am I just looking at the bad in this? You know, am I reading this to be as terrible as it is? And I started just gutted sobbing, like terrifying. Cause that promise of like a healthy brain MRI was just shredded. There's these pictures. I don't, I'm not a radiologist, but I can tell that that is brain death. And I am sick because I felt so reassured, you know, nine months ago about her normal MRI, um, and reading neurodegenerative and reading, you know, no cure and oh, absolutely gutted absolutely. I was home alone. I mean, just 
the layers of inappropriate, you know, um, and I actually work for um, the physician, my daughter's physician now is his mid-level. And he said, I wish they would have called me. He said, I would have been happy to bring you in for an appointment locally at our pediatric office to deliver the news for you as a physician, as a human being down at your level with your husband present, um, you know, uh, in a constructive way rather than an utter bomb dropping on you. Um, yeah, just a complete bomb, just two sad journal articles, um, and, and no link to resources. And that, I, that is often what happens. And a lot of times by the time people get to their genetic appointment with the geneticist three, six months later, um, parents on these rare diseases know more than the geneticist because they've done their research and connected with a community if one exists. And, um, but that was a terrible way to find out. And I just recently started adjuncting at the university um, that I was attending at the time. So I suddenly got access to all these like historical archived emails from years ago. And I searched it. I was like, I remember this geneticist name. I'm like, was it as cold as I recalled it to be? And it really was. Here's the two journal articles, you know, and no mention from her on the phone that, Hey, this is progressive or Hey, some, some kids die from this. Just leaving that for me to read on my own was savage. And, um, I will say that I do hold a grudge and we don't receive any health services through that health system anymore because uh, it was such a traumatic experience for me. I was about to say trauma. Yeah, I was about to say that word. And so, yeah. and so that leads to so many of us have a, a post-traumatic stress disorder from those instances. Do you yeah. feel that? Do you feel that you get triggered by that in other moments in, in any way? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I get very anxious when I go to the bigger hospital, the pediatric hospital systems, and I'm, um, sitting down with doctors. Um, I'm always unsettled and I have to be careful. I, I actually feel really lucky that my daughter, um, has such a cool spirit that she attracts incredible caregivers into our life that become friends of mine. And so the most recent one, I was able to pull one of her awesome caregivers, her name is Erica, to come downstate for a week with me and having, um, you know, mitigating, you know, the stress of being alone with Sadie by having somebody does tend to help the kind of, I don't know, overwhelming anxiety that I sometimes get in the hospital mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. from just fear of, you know, what, what news is going to be delivered where, because even her CP diagnosis when it was delivered at the time to me was traumatic. Um, and the sounds bad. I laugh about it now, what I would do to have CP as a diagnosis. But when they, when they told us that um, I was gutted, I was, well, you know, the I mean, floor sobbing that, gutted. that was the first layer of grief. That was the first layer of losing the dream that you had had for your firstborn child, your little girl mm -hmm. that you grew in your belly and that you delivered and that yeah. you had all these hopes and dreams for just like every other parent on yeah. planet earth. Yeah. And we have this vision totally false for every single yeah. one of us, I think. <laughs> Every yeah. human period, not just special right. <laughs> but yeah. we do that, you know, we think, you know, even though we came from less than ideal upbringings and whatnot, we think that our children are going to be absolutely perfect and we're going to have the yeah. absolutely perfect relationship with them as they grow up and we're going to do all these amazing things and it, it's no. going to be this, you know, fairy tale. That's just yeah. the reality of what, what we all think of when we're, when we're growing humans. And so- yeah, any diagnosis. I mean, I, we can look back and laugh as well. My daughter was born healthy and developing normally for um, for four months. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, but when she was born, she has um, on her right foot, her little, her her ring toe, I would call it. Yeah. The, <laughs> the one yeah. that's the ring finger, right? That little toe, it's called a curly toe. 
it's yeah. just like twisted. It's just like yeah. curls under her, uh, her other toe, her bigger one yeah. next to it. And oh my God, how worried we were about this curly toe. I mean, it, it, it literally is nothing. Like it has no effect. It doesn't do anything. But it, it, it was the first crack and you know, she wasn't a, a perfect human that perfect. you had been certain yeah. you would have. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I just think back, my husband was just so worried. I mean, just pacing worried about this, this little toe. And now we're like, it's the cutest thing ever. This little yeah. curly toe. <laughs> the easiest thing about her. Yeah. Yes. Curly toe that eats nothing. <laughs> Yeah. That toe. I'll take a hundred of those toes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you know, that initial, you know, anything that's, that was the, that was the loss of your dream. Of course yeah. it, of course it was gutting and devastating. And now that you say that there was, there's been so many, cause the first one was when she was, you know, four months old, I didn't think she could see me and it, but her eyes looked good on exam. So the doctor does the, like the light reflex, the your pediatrician, those looked good, but she would never make eye contact. And I was like, I had bad postpartum. And I was like, Oh, it's cause she knows I don't like to sing the song. You know, I, I hate twinkle twinkle, or I'm not good at this. And, um, you know, the, and then going to the eye doctor and finding, Hey, she has no visual response, uh, for either eye. Um, I think she has some brain damage that's contributing to her blindness. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so many little for complex children, so many little or frequent, you know, major diagnoses that not, yeah, not little, but yeah. Yeah. That can kind of traumatize you and Mm -hmm. because there's this pattern and then you're constantly on edge of when's the next thing coming. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, and so that's called potential, the grief of potential loss. So that's, that's another kind of grief that yeah. We have a lot of layers of grief. Yes. And um, it's only recently, probably within the last year or two that I've even taken to exploring them. Like felt like I had a handle enough on it to kind of look inward and think about how, how's it affecting me and, you know, my mind and my heart um, and not just be in survival mode of next doctor's appointment or next therapy task or and that's what yeah. it is when they're little. It's just you have appointment after appointment after appointment. And that's all that you can focus on because your brain can only handle so much. Yeah. I am grateful for time, you know, feeling stronger in uh, taking therapy breaks or committing to therapies that I do think are going to suit her. I'm, I'm grateful for like, you know, those years giving me that perspective and skill to say, you know, back-to-back appointments aren't going to work for us for PT and OT. Like it's just going to put me in a bad place and her in a bad place. Like, um, I'm grateful for time and learning to say no. Um, cause initially I was just like, yes, anything, anybody wants as much as anybody wants to see us do anything, we'll take it all. But because don't you feel that there's this, this element of desperation for and, sure? Yeah. You feel but, so desperate. Mm-hmm. To find the thing that will fix them or help in some way. Right. And then just kind of accepting, like, you know, we might not get to walking, you know, like, let's settle down on this, you know, let's help her move how she's moving comfortably. Um, yeah. Ratcheting down my expectations. And sometimes I worry I've ratcheted them down too low. Um, is and I check in with her school team sometimes, you know, they'll, they'll tell me what they're trying to teach her. And sometimes I'm like, wow, I, I would never have thought to attempt that. Um, and, and so I'm grateful to have some other people, but for me, that's how I've kind of coped is just setting the bar really low. And if, and if we slide over it, being really happy. Mm-hmm. It's such a hard balance to find for our own mental health and, and then the child's health and development as well it's, it's, and it's an impossible, it's an impossible situation that we're in. So yeah, let me just say to you, you are doing a great job. You, your expectations are where they need to be for everyone. And it's okay to cut back. I think I said this before we started recording maybe, but 
when you're carrying more, it's okay to do less. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's a hard one to grapple with. <laughs> yeah. So tell me about Weston. Oh, so my son, um, surprise baby. Um, as some people thought it was like a calculated heroic thing to choose to have a child after having Sadie. And it was a, a malfunction of birth control. Um, so I'm no brave hero on that end. Um, I had both kids while I was working on my doctorate and he actually came six weeks early. Um, so we spent a lot of time in the NICU, um, healthy, uh, just, um, I had another placental infection, um, and he was ready to come early. Um, and that actually kind of that experience in the NICU did kind of shape my career towards pediatrics. Uh, so I'm grateful for that, but my little man, um, uh, that's another thing, a sibling of, of somebody with special needs. Um, so Weston doesn't have any delays for being early. He is hearing, um, uh, he had hearing issues, recurrent ear infections, and he is speech delayed. And he's actually in the same early childhood special ed program as my daughter right now, which was a curveball because I thought I'd have, um, one normal kid if that made sense. Um, and so everyone head. knows that you, you put normal in air quotes. They, yeah, they're not going to yes. be able to see you, but yeah. <laughs> I just want to, I just want to throw that out there. That well, I thought, the I, normal had, I thought there was some, you know, some, somebody that like allotted how much, uh, mm. stress or a, a proportionate amount of medical bullshit per family. And I feel like I've gotten a disproportionate amount allotted in mine. No those out irrational. Um, but no, he's doing good, but I, I'm learning, um, actually, uh, we always had caregivers, um, in the home with Sadie because she was not suitable for a daycare, um, and how potentially, you know, stunting that was for Weston socially to have an older sibling, but not have her do much talking and then just a lot of yelling or have an older sibling that isn't walking and is still crawling. Um, so he's been in school for like the last 12 months and he is making major gains with his speech um, and navigating the world and his behaviors. Um, but yeah, he's definitely acting very three and a half and Oh yeah. Three. Oh, three. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's a new (laughs) parenting experience for me too, because Sadie is undisciplinable. Like I've never had to discipline her. Um, and so this whole opinion and tantrums and it's a whole new world of parenting. And I am in the throes of it. I have three books in front of me on potty training and parenting the defiant toddler and, um, (laughs) all the best intent on reading them but uh yeah I am in the throes of throes of parenting these these guys well he sounds fantastic yes and and, and it's not I just worry that sometimes that the, his delays were contributed to because my focus was always on Sadie um because um, to me you like as a nurse you triage like is her safety good breathing circulation, whatever. So like if he was watching TV for a little long, that really fell to the bottom of my care list at the time. Yeah, but you know, like it does, it doesn't work that way though. I mean, yeah. they do, de- they develop. Yes. Regardless. Yeah. I mean, unless, you know, unless they're yeah, severely abused, like true neglected child no. who literally kept in a cage in the closet. I mean, you know, like if, 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 if you're a typical which you are yes, typically functioning, you know, household of love. Um, yes. They do. They develop how, you know, you, I want you to release that guilt. Cause I, 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 yeah. I feel that, you know, I feel that in you and it's just not something that you need to carry. It's not something that is, is real. It's not, it's not how it works. He is who he is and who he was meant to be for himself. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. I know he's perfectly him. Yeah. There's a lot of pressure put in those first three years in the literature of gr- growth and development. And to, 
to throw Which a divorce in there in a pandemic. Yeah. 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 You know, it's easy to, to overanalyze mm-hmm. for sure. And, you know, half his life has been spent in a pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. Which completely changed everyone's way of parenting. Yeah. I know it didn't. The kids household, boy, like major. And we've had to in this, in this last maybe six months, really try to reshift ourselves back to kind of pre-pandemic normalcy as far as parenting, because it completely changed how we ran our house. Yeah. You know, was so different. Yeah. How could it not? Yeah. It's, it's been a weird time to be a parent. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Mm -hmm. So he, uh, what does he like? What does Weston like to do? Oh gosh. Cars are the biggest thing right now. We are super into cars. He will race all day long. If you will pick up a matchbox car and attempt sound effects, that is, that is his jam right now. Um, yeah, cars pretty much run our life. A little bit of Play-Doh. Sometimes he'll help me in the kitchen a little bit. I'll let him make a slop bowl of whatever ingredients I'm cooking with, but he gets to measure and mix into some horrific slushy, um, uh, anything to keep him busy for a few minutes. Um, slop bowl. Yeah. Cause it's, he's not making what I'm making and nobody will be eating it, but he thinks it's really cool and I'll give him a whisk. I've never heard it with that term. And I just, it is so clear in my mind exactly what he is creating yeah. by that term. And I love it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's been banned from helping after I saw him spit into the French toast. Batter. Oh, so uh, he, he, he gets purely fun assignments in the kitchen now. <laughs> I'm sorry. He's a three-year-old boy, sister. I mean, it's yeah. what you get. <laughs> yep, that is. That is what you get. Yes, queerly parenting a three-and-a-half-year-old boy. Yeah, precisely. That really tickles me. <laughs> um, so I, I have a question for you before we wrap up. What advice would you give to anyone in the medical field about how to deliver a diagnosis to a family, how to deliver any kind of hard news to a family? In person, number one, even if you think you're going to freak them out by the phone call and saying they need to come into the office, which, you know, will set off alarms. I think human contact is smart and also encouraging them to make sure that there's a person for the person you're delivering the news to making sure they're not alone. You know, is their husband, can their mom come, um, and maybe offering to see them without, you know, if you're talking about a terminal diagnosis without the child present, um, so that they can actually be present and not be caretaking as you're delivering this punch. Um, And then the other thing that I think is easy enough to do is in the absence of information, try and do a lit review for them. You know, it would have been a lot nicer um, and felt more credible to me to receive, you know, her rare disease diagnosis if those two journal articles were also with a link to the family support group, which was easily found on Google, you know? I think that's, that would be, would have made a world of difference, um, in our experience. Um, yeah, taking a little bit of time to, to do a little bit of research, um, uh, and delivering it in person would be really helpful. Mm-hmm. Really, really and helpful. I, and I have no idea how things are these days. Um, my daughter's 20, so that that was eons ago, right? Uh, in the medical field. <laughs> um, so I'm curious, I wonder across the board, there's going to be peaks and valleys, you know, everywhere mm-hmm. because we all live in different communities, et cetera. But I wonder in general, if it's common to receive resources 
mm-hmm. as a part of a, a diagnosis or a, or any sort of big news. Um, my experience, you know, over several, several years was, was you got nothing, you know, yeah. parents, other parents were the only roadmap for resources that I ever had when my daughter was, was growing up. You know, I recently advocated for palliative care um, uh, as a consult for my daughter to take a hat off of me as her medical coordinator and kind of put some decisions on a team of people um, so that I don't feel like I'm forgoing treatments and like holding the weight of all those decisions and asking for their help. But they, I was very impressed with the, the most comprehensive list of resources I've ever received was from palliative care. And that um, I believe, yeah, yeah, because uh, that's kind of their whole role. Yeah, and it was and really to beautiful. provide a comfortable life and a good, yeah. good, you know, to let you live a good life. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's their whole role is finding all of those things. Yeah, so that I totally believe. And I want to say, good for you. <laughs> yeah, for, for reaching out for that because. It, it's a common misnomer that palliative care equals this person is actively dying. Yeah, right. no, it is totally not true, and so few people know that and understand. Right. That. Obviously, I would expect you to know and understand that, but I love that we're being able to bring this up in this yeah. conversation so that other people who are listening can know and understand that things like hospice and palliative care are available to people for, for years you, and years. You, you don't have to, like you said, be actively dying. Um, yeah. Very final, you know, days or weeks in order to get that kind of support. And it's no. huge. Um, yeah. For, for people in your situation, dealing with chronic illness. Yeah. 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 I'm grateful for that resource. There needs to be more pediatric palliative cares, um, geographically in Michigan, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think it's a great service um, and always worth asking about because the philosophy behind it is really in nursing based um, and holistic um, and can maximize quality of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all about the quality of life and who doesn't want their child to have the best life possible? For sure. For sure. All right. Good for you. So thank you so very much for talking with us today, being open and sharing um, a little about your life and your journey and about Sadie and Weston. And I thank you and I'm very grateful. Thank you for having me. Take care. Take care. Thank you for being here. If you want to learn more about how to take care of yourself along your parenting journey or how you can better support those special needs parents in your life, you can follow me on social media, Lara Kitts on Facebook and at Lara.Kitts on Instagram. And that is spelled L-A-R-A-K-I-T-T-S. I also have a blog on my website that's worth subscribing to. Check it out at LaraKitts.com. Until next time. Take care of yourself.